And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm excited to be joined today by Yvette Rivera, who is currently at the Department of Transportation, but is joining us as with all of our guests in her personal capacity. So Yvette, welcome to the show. We're really happy to have you. Noah, thank you for having me. This is really a pleasure. Yvette, let's dive right in. You have had a long and exciting career in the U.S. federal government. Let's take you all the way back to the beginning. Why did you want to work in the U.S. federal government as opposed to all of the other options that I'm sure you had early in your career? Well, it was fueled by the call to service by President Kennedy, as well as the civil rights movement. I grew up in the 1960s, and social justice was really something that was important to me. And it also comes from my my faith, as well as my early education. And I went to college, and I was on my way to get a master's in social work, and a professor at, in college said, if, if you want to make a difference, you really need to go to law school. And he introduced me to a bunch of civil rights cases that the Supreme Court of the United States issued, and, and I saw that all those cases were advocated by the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. So that became the place I wanted to go. Did you feel... Did people think of you only in one way? Did you feel like people only looked at you and saw a lawyer? Or were you able to play different roles early in your career? I think that, yes, I did play different roles. And I think that's what public service gives you that opportunity. You are able to be creative and see uh, opportunities where others don't see opportunities. I think, you know, that's something that I'm very proud of being a lawyer because you just learn how to see things that that other people don't. It's interesting that when you were having this conversation, you were thinking about what you wanted to do. It seemed like government was the place. And, you know, when I talk to peers today, or when you read some of the, the new research, the younger generations seem to think of companies or nonprofits or the social sector first now. Why do you think that is? Sadly, I think that there has been bad press for public service and, you know, there were some big embarrassing situations that really are outliers and people think that public service or public servants are not as motivated as people in the private sector and that, you know, we're not helpful. So I think that there's a branding issue regarding public service and I love that you're doing this because it's, you know, something that resonates with me. I think wherever, wherever I go, I talk about public service, how creative we can be, how impactful we can be. And, you know, clearly our bosses, the American public, they pay our salaries and efficiencies are important. You know, we can't ignore that. We have to work smart. But, you know, to answer your question, yeah, I think that there's a branding issue and people think something that's not true about public service. And we'll go into it a little bit more later, but it's been a remarkable career for me. And I really encourage people to rethink, you know, public service, whether it's with the federal government or state and local government. There's a lot that can be done that really makes a difference in the lives of people and especially the lives of people who come from underserved communities. Let's go ahead and get into it then about your career. 
I have to confess I'm a baby boomer, but I, I am like a millennial because I have had several jobs in, in different uh, U.S. government agencies. My first job right after law school was at the United States Department of Justice, and I worked in the Civil Rights Division. My work was enforcing the Voting Rights Act. It still gives me goosebumps thinking about, you know, going to Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, and the Navajo Nation and all these places to work on voting rights enforcement, ensuring that voting is is accessible to everyone because it's a right and the United States stands for democracy. So we definitely have to make sure that our that democracy exists in our backyard. So that's where I started and it, it was an amazing learning experience. I I worked with really top lawyers and they taught me so many things about how to be a, an effective advocate. And then from there, I left for personal reasons, got married, and, and then I came back to federal government. But I, I didn't want to travel too much uh, because I had a young family. I wanted to work on economic opportunity, so I, I joined the Office of the Control of Currency, which is a small agency within the Department of Treasury. And while I did not work on that area, I did work on civil rights cases, Title VII cases. And in that role, I learned that the civil rights cases that I saw involved poor communication, poor management, poor leadership. So I started working on proactive measures that can try to overturn those trends, and I started a mediation uh, process there at the Office of the Control of the Currency. So So let me me jump in there for a second, Yvette, if uh I can, because this is all, it's all really interesting, and I want to make sure we do it justice before we move on. Your first job was enforcing the Voting Rights Act, which even today still gets cited as something that's, you know, some people will say it's under fire, others say it's being abused. Can you tell us what does it actually mean to be enforcing the Voting Rights Act? What does your job look like if you fly into Mississippi and your job is to make sure that everybody there can vote? What are you actually doing? There are many components to it. The large part of it is investigating. So I think many people know that the the Civil Rights Division at Justice is where you lodge civil rights complaints. And so it's through that people calling or reading the newspaper or you do some proactive work. You start, you know, looking at, at places where voting turnout is low and you want to see what's causing it. And so in that situation, you would do some research, try to find some leading community folks that can give you a little bit more information on what's going on in the jurisdiction. And, and there you can find out The polling place has been moved to a place that's inaccessible. And so then you get deeper into it. Why was that change made? Were people from the community impacted, consulted? Was there an alternative that was overlooked? Was it overlooked intentionally? You even look at, you know, minutes or internal work product to try to see, well, why did they change? What was the purpose of this change? And from that, the best solution is the voluntary solution, but the voting section is definitely a litigation shop. So a lot of things are initiated through a complaint. It's been a while since I've been there, but the the ideal situation is for us to call 
say, you know, what's, you know, this is going on, what's the story behind this, and hoping that uh, you can provide some technical assistance and, and, and get people to reverse their course. When I worked there, there was a specific provision of the Voting Rights Act that was in effect that uh, the Supreme Court struck down. And that provision allowed for mandating that places in certain southern states and certain counties in New York and California, all of Texas, that any change in voting had to be submitted for approval, essentially. So without getting too technical, the major part of enforcing the Voting Rights Act is that investigation piece you know, developing relationships with people throughout the United States, being rigorous in researching and determining where there might be some issues and try to get there and seek reversal of those issues, either voluntarily or through a lawsuit. Yeah, what I love about that story and your experience is it's a reminder that, yes, you were a federal employee, but you weren't kind of siloed in a desk in Washington as a elite bureaucrat disconnected from people. You were out there in communities advocating on behalf of individuals who maybe didn't have any other recourse. And I think it's a powerful message to remember that not everybody who works for our federal government immediately becomes detached <laughs> from society yeah. and siloed off in this, in this world. Yeah, definitely. And I worked on building those relationships with with officials so that they would come to us if they had, you know, needed technical assistance. And the other part I forgot is when there's evidence of voting rights issues, we can send federal observers, federal government employees to to monitor the elections and report how people are being processed and what kind of assistance they get to vote if they need it. And as attorneys, we would manage those federal employees on election day and where we could, we would try to troubleshoot and let's say a, a poll worker was asking someone to produce their birth certificate or something like that. We would, you know, definitely troubleshoot that because of the whole vetting process that's done by county voting office or the state voting registration office. And the poll worker is not supposed to be administering those duties. It's quite literally an essential function. And I wonder how, having done that for some time, how do you think about the balance between fighting each individual battle to make sure that one person's vote is cast and registered and heard today versus focusing on advocating for systemic change or new laws or you know, high-level policy? Did you feel a tension between those two let's call them pathways to affecting change. And how did you think about that? I think they're both important for our democracy. So if you want to ensure that there's fairness and there's not unintended consequences, you have to address that right away with systemic changes. And at the same time, you want people, you know, there's nothing more glorious than to go in there and cast a vote. You just feel... Uh, a sense of civic pride. And you and I always remember we went down after Hurricane Katrina to uh, monitor elections because so many people had to move out. A lot of people moved to Houston and to other states nearby. But 
but we were able to create a, a system so that they could come back and vote if they wanted or they can ask, uh, vote by affidavit. But I'll, I'll never, ever forget this couple coming, drove all the way from Houston to cast a vote in New Orleans. You know, that was to them incredibly important. And that memory is seared in my mind forever. We in my family never miss voting. It's, it's a religious act for us. So too many people sacrificed their lives for that right and, and still do. Amen. And yet our country's voter participation still isn't quite where we, what we'd expect or, or where we'd perhaps like it to be. Yeah. And why, why do you think that is? It, you know, it doesn't seem to, we get little changes and there are moments in time where the country's more politically engaged, but why do you think it remains so low for a democratic country? Well, it's, when I worked in the South and back in the eighties and compared to in the Northeast, there was just a difference in the idea of how important this obligation is. And I think it did turn around. I, I was out there in the elections for President Obama, and I remember the lines, people waiting for forever. I was in New Jersey monitoring elections there, and it was just incredible. I think that in America, I think people view voting as something that they want to do, but if they're presented with a negative reason, then they may, they may not do it. I think that's why you have negative campaigning because negative campaigning is a way to keep people from going up, going to vote. Voting is difficult, especially if you're working family, you have to go home and cook dinner, you know, have a long day. And if you don't have a positive reason to vote and you don't have early voting or absentee voting, you might not go. You might not go and, and vote. It's a smart message for any aspiring political candidates to remember, which is that you got to give people something to be excited about, something to want to go. Exactly. Motive him to action. And I think the thing, too, that I would say is that there's so much attention to the presidential elections. And yes, it's incredibly, incredibly important. But also important is your school board election because your kids are going to be impacted. The city council, because you're garbage collection is going to be impacted. And I know that there are a lot of nonprofits that focus on on voting. And I think it would be great to just make it, it's, it's civic pride for every election in your community. It is certainly interesting that voting itself is, is a fairly old process. And yet as the sanctity of elections and making sure that, you know, people who are supposed to be voting vote, people who really shouldn't be voting don't. Elections are, are kind of a hot issue right now. It's an issue that is in the news. Are there, are there messages that you think are being lost in all of this? Are you happy with the coverage and the way that elections are gaining prominence again in the U.S. or are we missing the point? Yeah, you're um, glad you asked that because I think it's it's worrisome for me. I think that that there's a huge cloud about voting, and and that's dangerous. If you keep on talking about foreign interference in our election, or it's just like, well, why am I going to vote? That's what someone could say. And I hope the media does a little bit more on how hard local jurisdictions do work on on making sure that it's going to work for you and that 
I, I, you know, yeah, that cloud, that negative cloud, it, it is very worrisome for me. It's, a, it's been for a long time. We have issues, but we still need to promote that, that act of voting as something that is too important to ignore. So we'll ask everybody out there to keep the faith and keep voting. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah definitely. I don't want to spend the entire time talking about your experience enforcing voting law, but it is fascinating. I think it's a perspective that we don't get all that often. But let's fast forward. You know, you talked about your other roles at Treasury, DOJ. You ended up, interestingly enough, at the Department of Transportation, which at face value doesn't seem to naturally flow from positions where you're enforcing voting laws. How did that come about? It definitely doesn't sound too sexy, does it? (laughs) If you would have asked my younger self, would I go to the Department of Transportation? I would have said, hell no, absolutely not. And I have to say that this has been a wonderful experience, actually. So I was recruited here by someone that I had worked with, had worked with her like 10 years before. So that's a, you know, an important message I want to leave with your listeners that you never know who's watching. And it's nice that I had an impact on someone and they thought of me and said, you know, hey, come in and give DOT a try. And sure enough, I got here and I really have loved it because in my previous role as an enforcement official, you're, you're, you're kind of limited. You, you do your advocacy and you get results but they're kind of one-offs, you know, and in this role at DOT, and I'll tell you in a moment what that is, you have a real pro- programmatic, proactive role where you can have lasting and impactful change. So I got here and I was given this program to work on, which is a, a part of the Civil Rights Act that a lot of people don't know about. It's Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it was enacted because of the workarounds that the southern states were doing to continue segregation or discriminatory practices. And through this provision of the Civil Rights Act, Congress said basically, look, if you're taking federal financial assistance for a project or activity, you cannot discriminate. Simple. It really is an really, really important statute. And there's so much literature regarding, you know, the uh, the power behind this statute. And in essence, it, it, it promotes good governance. If you're a state transportation agency, and all of them receive federal financial assistance, they're a big funding agency, you have to ensure that all communities that are are going to be served by that project or activity, all communities need to be treated fairly and not one community should be receiving the burden of a project or activity. So let's say you're talking about project activity that causes pollution. It shouldn't, that impact should not just be on a community community of color. So it is an important program because it's really a a forward-looking statute which means that, you know, we want you to get it right. And if you look at the legislative history, that's what the legislators, congressmen and senators who voted for this said, we, you know, we want these projects and activities to happen because federal money is involved. There cannot be discrimination. It 
it's powerful because we all take transportation for granted and we shouldn't because if you can't get good transportation, you cannot get to a job. You can't go to a place of worship. You can't go to healthcare. Your quality of life is impacted. You can't go to school. Or when I was a kid in New York City, I worked a part-time job after my classes during high school. But I could do that because I can get there quickly, work a couple hours, and then go home and do my homework. So yeah, I have had really a great experience leading this program and seeking to be impactful for communities. Yeah, it's such an important thing. It's such an important thing. And do you, here, here's the question. You've been working at this for, for some time, and these are difficult issues, and it's change takes a long time, and you have small wins, and once in a while you get some big wins. Do you think we're making progress? I think so. You know, the crusade that I'm on is to lift up what people understand as civil rights. What makes it difficult sometimes, because I think, unfortunately, the narrative people have on civil rights, they believe in getting something that's unfair because of the merits. And that narrative is so wrong, but unfortunately has gotten traction. So yes, I think that there has been progress, but I think we need to do something about the narrative and help people understand what civil rights is and what it is not. Really, civil rights means that there's an equal playing field. You create opportunities, you pat people on the shoulders, you say, apply to this. This is how you get to this job. This is what you need to work on. In a world where so much of this is long-term in nature and where you, you have to continue just day in, day out, putting that effort in to move towards some of these goals, when you face setbacks, when progress is uneven, what motivates you to keep going? My value is helping people and believing that everyone deserves a fair chance. Whatever authority that I have, I want to, you know, remove those barriers and open those doors so that the lives of young children are better, lives of hardworking Americans is much better. I love public service. We talked earlier about the negative branding regarding our public service, but I think that it is a wonderful way of making a difference and being responsive to our American public. I love what we stand for as a nation. I, I can't rest until I can say, well, I've done my job. Now it's time to move on. I have a great team that really believes in these values. So we're, we're still working at it. <laughs> so what will that day look like? What do you want your legacy to be? I think that uh, my team see how opportunities are all over the place and that, you know, we just can't wait for someone to tell us to do something. We need to try and try and try and, and until something works, especially in transportation. You want to be as proactive as possible because you want to get it right. You know, once a highway ramp is constructed, you can't really turn that around. So you want to get the best buck out of the American taxpayers' money and making sure that what we fund works for everyone. Well, thank you so much, Yvette, for, for sharing all of this uh, with us today. It's, it's inspiring to hear your passion for the work and how you've managed to stay so focused and so dedicated over your career. Before I let you go here, any final words, any final thoughts for our listeners? 
Well, I am entirely uh, grateful to you, Noah, because I've been thinking about this. You know, uh, how do you get this information out there? How do you talk to people and inspire them to really consider a, a career in public service? Not maybe the, their whole career, their whole lifetime, but part of their career and get to experience this wonderful opportunity to, to make a powerful difference in the lives of our American public. And I haven't thought about voting rights for a while, so I'm glad you asked me those questions. And I would please get everyone, make sure you check your registration, go check everyone's registration in your family and and make sure that, you know, get people up to vote and help on election day in any way you can. An important message. Thank you, Yvette. And, and thank you for everything that you've done for the country and that you continue to do and for, and for being with us here today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Noah. Thank you so much. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.